2: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood feminist. feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello, Miss Keegan. Hi, hi. So, are you, are you ready for Town 3? I think it's four four even. Oh my gosh,
0: you're right. It's take four. Oh my God. Uh, Okay, so for listeners, we tried to record this. We put something up on our Instagram to let you know, but we tried to record this last week for last week's episode, and we tried the first time, had problems, stopped, restarted, had problems two more times. But we were like, okay, oh, we're gonna power through. <laughs> the last time we
2: made it like forty minutes
0: in, almost. Yes, 40 we minutes were almost done when my
2: when my audio went to hell, and I had sound waves, but there was nothing playing, and
0: I was like, fuck. So we listened back. Sure enough, there was no, there was well, no sound. This is the thing. I was talking to Christina, my co-host from my worst date, who does a lot of our editing. And she said that if your storage, if you don't have enough storage when you start recording, it doesn't matter if you have sound waves, it will clear everything. Yep. So I was like, that's probably what happened. It's
2: exactly what happened. But then after that, I bought like two more terabytes of like iCloud storage and all this stuff and nothing was working. So I am now on my dinosaur of an old computer.
0: Uh, back to the old school garage band style here. Well, fingers (sighs) crossed, because if we don't make it this time, I'm just going to assume that John Lewis is looking down on us from heaven and is just like, sis... No, call it a day. Call it it's, a, yeah, we it, it's not meant to happen. I didn't I
2: I wouldn't have wanted you to work this hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're working real hard for me, guys. Yeah. So we are going to be talking about John Lewis today. And on the day that we're recording this, which is Thursday the 30th, uh, John Lewis's funeral was today yes, actually. it was. And I did watch part of it while I was at work today. I managed to get in snippets here and there. And he is just such an extraordinary human being. I did start Good Trouble but I haven't finished it. I know you watched it and I, I watched the PBS documentary Get In The Way. There is something about watching John Lewis speak, live, just exist be, um, yeah. that is Incredible. Like every person I talked to who has watched any of these documentaries or spent any amount of time like actively researching this man have said like he's brought me to tears. Yeah. And I swear to God, I was in tears in the first like 10 minutes yeah. of getting in the way. Yeah. So Ooh, he
2: just has such a brilliant way of speaking and such a brilliant way of getting his point across that makes him seem so personal. And that's something that, you know, we, when we were recording this the first few times we talked about in both documentaries, how we would see people just come up to him all the time. Like there was a clip in good trouble where he's got lipstick on his mouth and his staff is like making fun of him for it. And he's like, she kissed me. Like what these people just flock to him and love him. And he just takes the time to talk to everybody like he's just another he's not
0: human he's something else you know it feels genuine I think that that's what it is is because for a lot of people even when they're very nice people you can tell when they're tired or they're you know they've got other things on their mind right when he's interacting with other people it feels so genuine and <laughs> I brought this up the last time we recorded we shouldn't say that every time because yeah, we'll we say can't. that a million times <laughs> um but there was footage in the beginning of get in the way where he even in late into his career where everyone knew him and he didn't have to do these things anymore. He would still do like cookouts with people who were local, like in mm-hmm. Atlanta. And there was footage of him at a cookout that made me like literally, I, I might be like really hormonal, but it's making me kind of like tear up right now because he's this like old man Mm-hmm. It's like precious old man and he is being pushed on a swing set yep. by just like one of his constituents and I'm like <laughs> this is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. It's, like well, he is such
2: an amazing person because, you know, we're going to talk about all of the things that he did in his life and the struggles that he's gone through in his life. Yet, he had almost like this childlike exuberance because there was another video where he's dancing to the song Happy by Pharrell Williams. And, you know, people were shocked to see this like silly, you know, video of him go viral. And it was so funny. His secretary that worked with him forever was just like, Oh,
0: yeah, John loves to dance, like, obviously. And it's just, he's so unique. Yeah, I feel like people have this mental picture of what an activist looks like, and you almost have to be, like, hard and serious uh, to to fit that kind of, like, activism mold. Um, And he is very serious about social justice and civil rights. Like, that's what he devoted his life to. Yeah, he devoted his entire life to these things. However, you can tell that he is a, a kind person and that he believes in social justice because he is a kind person. Well, like, right. I was going to say he,
2: he practices what he preaches, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's I- exhibiting the kindness that he wants everybody to treat each other with, you know? Yeah. So truly, truly, truly a role model. So let's get into this wonderful man's life. Let's uh, do it. Let's do it. Keegan. Fourth time's a charm. All right. <laughs> I swear I won't say that again. Uh, so John Lewis was born on February 21st, 1940 in Troy, Alabama. Pisces. What? Oh, I know. He's a Pisces like me. I just have to point that out every time. <laughs> every time. Yes, Keegan, he's a Pisces. So tell me what he's like then. What, what are Pisces like?
0: I mean, we're all like John Lewis, obviously. Obviously. We're all just little John Lewis's. No, but I mean, look, I don't put a lot of like real serious stake into astrology, but there is this idea that Pisces are very like sensitive and kind. And I'm like, that feels right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'm a Cancer and Cancers
2: are known for being sensitive and fucking crazy, which is right. (laughs) Great. So, (laughs) Which is exactly me. All right. So John was born 13 out of ten children to his parents, William A. Carter, Lewis, and Eddie Lewis. His parents are both sharecroppers in Pike County in Alabama, and John grew up helping his parents and siblings pick cotton. So he was always very, very uh, into his education. He was always like his siblings said he always behaved really well. You know, he'd wear a suit and tie to school. He loved reading. Like, his education was so important to him. Mm -hmm. And he really, you know, he didn't mind. Obviously, you know, he worked with his family in the fields picking cotton. But his brother, you know, saw his love for knowledge and would take over John's duties in the fields so that John could go to school and get an education. Um, And I think that's such a beautiful like way for him to kind of start his journey to have his family kind of uplifting him in that way.
0: Yes. And he he held on to that throughout his whole life, his love for learning. Um, But his parents were sharecroppers, so they were working for almost no money. And this is something that John... Realized very, very early. So he kind of jokes in Get in the Way with his brothers about like him not wanting to work or rather, you know, that he would rather be reading books or doing something else. And he clarifies that it's not that he is afraid of hard work. Obviously, he was willing to do whatever the family needed of him. Right. But he recognized very early on that the whole family would be working all year round in this hot Alabama sun only to make almost no money at the right. end of the year. Like the inequality was something that struck him very young and the injustice of it. And so he realized that this was just like another form of slavery and he resented it deeply. And a lot of the people in his community, including his parents, had this mentality that this is just the way it is. Right? Yes, we know it's you not You just there. accept it because this is the way it is if you want to stay safe, you keep your head down. Don't get into any trouble. (laughs) You know, just keep your head down. This is just the way that it is. Um, But he had a very, very keen sense of justice very early on. And he knew that the things going going on around him, particularly segregation, were not right. I mean, you talk about his love for reading, and he talks about how when he was young, he went to the library and the librarian kicked him out of the library there in Alabama because black people weren't allowed to be in the library. So right. he knew from a young age, this isn't right. And I don't want to just take it lying down. You yeah, know? exactly. And while you know he grew up with this great
2: you know, love for knowledge and education, he knew that he always wanted to be a preacher. Uh, One of my favorite parts of Good Trouble, the documentary, was the amount of times I got to hear his chicken story, the infamous chicken story. So, you know, on, you know, the property that he grew up on, there were lots of these chickens and he would feed the chickens and he would, you know, kind of line them up like his congregation and preach to them. And he says, you know, they would they would nod and shake their heads along with what he said and then he jokingly says i never quite got them to say amen but you know he just had this like a, a natural ability to preach and he knew he yes. was good at it he spoke well he
0: was well, smart other people knew he was good at it as well one of my favorite parts in good trouble is when he's talking to his brother and they're telling the chicken story and he's talking about the chickens And his brother says he was such a good speaker, he was such a good preacher, that when a chicken would die and they would have a funeral for the chicken, he would give a eulogy for the chicken and the whole family would be crying for this chicken. And he was like, that's how good of a speaker he was. They're like, we didn't really care about the chicken, but the way that he talked about the chicken. Well, and
2: he clearly (laughs) cared about the
0: chicken. And when you, I mean, it's kind of like when you know
2: someone who's had a death in the family and then you start. Are crying, you know, there's just something about when someone else cares so much about something, deep empathy, deep yeah. empathy, and then and that rubs off on people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's that's the reason that we cry when we see, you know, people going through strong emotions. Not necessarily because we can relate to it ourselves, but because we see the love that that person has for. Another human, or in this case, a chicken. Um, So I read on Wikipedia that he had only ever seen two white people before he was the age of six. I'm like, that's really specific.
0: but Feels hyperbolic because I'm like, okay, so the librarian was one. Yes. Surely there had to have been others. But I, I understand what they're saying, though. And his parents were sharecroppers, and he would go to work with them. You'd think that he would see...
2: But maybe I guess when he was really young, he wouldn't do that because they start saying that as he would go into town with his parents when he was getting older was when he started to notice um, how segregated everything was, and that's when he started, you know, realizing that that was going to be, like you said, his his mission in life to be able to stand up for his community.
0: Yeah. And in 1955 is when the Montgomery bus boycott was going on. And that was kind of like kick started by Rosa Parks. Uh, As we know, we've discussed this before on this podcast. But when that was going on, he heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons on the news in 1955. And he describes that moment as being kind of like the first time that he recognized what he could do, what his could be that someone could do something you didn't have to just like sit down and accept that what was happening around you was okay it's almost like discovering there's
2: a career you didn't know you could
0: have but you were already really good at it and it's perfect for you you know, yes. and there's a whole world of opportunity for him. Yeah, and he really was just this
2: kind of like mini MLK Jr. And Ugh, Mart- their relationship is so cute. They're so sweet together. And you know, he was so moved when he saw Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches that he wrote him a letter in nineteen fifty-five. And not only did King write him back, but he included a round trip Greyhound bus ticket to join him to Montgomery. And Lewis would meet up with him about three years later in March of 1958 to keep up with that promise. Yes, because it
0: didn't have the the Greyhound bus ticket. I feel like we oftentimes think about like bus or plane tickets uh, the way that we have them now, which is just like you have to buy it for a specific date and time. Right. Whereas back then, you could have like open ended. I don't know if you can still do that with buses, but you could have an open ended bus ticket, which is basically like anytime you want to redeem this, you can. Or maybe it's within a certain time frame. But um, he used it years later. He
2: did. And he tells the story about being picked up by, you know, someone who worked with King and, you know, brought over to the First Baptist Church where he met him. And, you know, he was so nervous and he's like, I don't know why I said my full name, but I went up to him and I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. I gave my whole name, but he still called me the boy from Troy. So cute.
0: It's so freaking cute. In 1957, John left Alabama. He leaves Alabama and he goes to attend American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And in Get In The Way, he talks about how it was a major change for him because his classes in Nashville were integrated. Uh And like you said, his... Interactions with white people, particularly any kind of progressive white presence, were limited to none in Alabama. So this was a massive change for him. All of a sudden, he's going to classes um, with not only with white people, but with other white people who also feel um, this passion for civil rights and social justice. Exactly. And that is
2: where he started kind of learning the art of peaceful protest by someone by the name of Jim Lawson. And Jim Lawson studied under Mahatma Gandhi's technique of nonviolent direct action and passive resistance. So this is where John learned to be loving and forgiving in every situation. And they show a video of you know, them practicing this uh nonviolent direct action and they're, you know, you see the students, you know, trying to stand really still and not say anything and not interact with the people that are harassing them while they're just, you know, screaming the N word at them and pushing them around. And even though, you know, it's just like an exercise, it's horrifying to watch. But then, you know, it says that uh, he says that, you know, he was taught that if you were to look at your, you know, attacker or whomever in the eye that humanizes you. If you show them love and compassion, that gives them an opportunity to show you love and and compassion in return.
0: Yeah, it's a very like Buddhist principle, which is it's hard to it's hard to keep that in mind, because it's very difficult to show compassion to people who are dehumanizing you. Like they do not see you as their equal and they don't even necessarily see you as a human being. And I, and and that can be very hard to show compassion, to be the bigger person to rise above. But it's something that he really believed in like nonviolence and kindness were like a religion to yeah, John Lewis. Yeah,
2: that, that was his religion. You know, it was just, he truly believed that kindness was going to be the way through this movement. You know, obviously we had people like Malcolm X come later and things even, like that.
0: Yeah, that was something that Gandhi even said. I believe it was Gandhi. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe Keegan's Gandhi... quoting Gandhi, everybody. <laughs> I believe Gandhi coined that phrase, um, my religion is kindness. Yeah. And I feel like John Lewis really kind of stuck to that. And, and as a principle that he lived by for the rest of his life, really. Yeah, he really did. So he ended up
2: joining the SNCC or SNCC in Nashville. And he teamed up with another SNCC member named Diane Nash, who was a white woman. And they organized the first sit-in at a diner in Nashville. When they were arrested, because of course they were arrested, they denied paying their bail and instead decided to spend time in jail. And that's something that I feel like was probably a really, really big statement at the time, saying that I believe he spent like 40 days in jail at one point in Alabama during one of these sit-ins. And that takes a lot of courage because I would immediately be like, someone pull this money together and get me the fuck out of here. And he's like, you know what?
0: Well, it's something that... It's something that still happens at protests today. So if you go to protests, um, depending on the anticipation for violence from you know law enforcement officials, particularly, I've gone to protests where they have asked before the protests began who was willing to be arrested. Yes, exactly. Um, and then those people essentially volunteer to be arrested. So, I mean, that kind of bravery does still exist. But yeah, I mean, so the way that these these sit-ins would work is that they would go up to the lunch counter, they would sit down, they would read a book and they would wait to be served and they would never get served. And then at the end of the day, they would pack up all their shit, they'd go home and then they would come back the next day. And very quickly, white people began to see what was going on in Nashville and their way of life began to feel threatened and they became very aggressive. And so like you said, a lot of these nonviolent protesters, including John, um, were arrested and not only arrested, but they were also beaten um, by the protesters and sometimes by police. And John describes that first time getting arrested for the sit-in and how his mom wrote him this letter telling him to please come home. Please stop what you're doing. She's worried for his safety. Um, And also, you know, there is this Especially for black families, I, I feel like, I know this was true of, like, my grandma. She had five sons. And there is this belief that, like, if you can just keep your sons from getting arrested and going to jail, you yeah. just have to keep them from getting arrested and Which going makes to jail. Because
2: 100% yes, sense yes. as to why that would be a black mother's inclination to do that.
0: Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um, but John wrote her back. <laughs> and he was like, Mom, I love you. But... This is something that I feel really strongly and passionately about. I know that even though on paper, yes, it looks bad that I've been arrested, but I know that I am doing the right thing. So I'm going to keep at it. And it was during this time when he started kind of coining
2: the phrase, getting into good trouble, necessary trouble, you know, and that's really how he viewed it. Because yes, like being arrested, that's, you know, it's not a good thing. You don't want to be arrested. But
0: his trouble was necessary. It was necessary for these arrests. It's funny because both of these documentaries, you know, Good Trouble and Get in the Way, Mm -hmm. they come from things that his mother said to him, which is, don't get into trouble, don't get in the way. That is (laughs) so funny. And he would tell people, like, you know, he gave a commencement speech at Harvard, I think, where he said, like, get in the way, you know? And um, he was just such an incredible person because he was... He went to college. Most of his siblings did not go to college, and he didn't even get to walk in his own college graduation because it was at the time that he was getting arrested oh my for gosh. the Freedom Rides, which yeah. is what we're going to talk about next.
2: Yeah, well, I wanted to to just kind of end this section by talking about how instrumental these sit-ins were in Nashville because it was through these sit-ins that the desegregation of lunch counters uh, happened in, in downtown Nashville. So it wasn't like they were unsuccessful. Their, their work was 100% worth it. And I believe that this probably just spurred him even more to be like, Hey, I did this. What else, what else can we do? Right. You know?
0: I, I do feel like knowing your power and knowing that you as an individual have the ability to affect change, um, Can really be this very exciting, enticing feeling. It is. I don't want to say that it's like a drug, but like kind of like you're always wanting to seek justice after that because you were able to accomplish something. Right? If you were able to do it
2: once, why can't I do it a hundred more times with all these other things that are going on in the world? Exactly.
0: So he was. Totally committed to the civil rights movement at this point, And he went on to participate in the Freedom Rides of 1961. Yes, he was
2: one of the original 13 riders.
0: Yes. So I'm going to just talk really quickly about the events um, that happened there. The Freedom Rides, the Freedom Riders... They could have their own full-length episode. We could go into detail about every detail about um, about this situation, but Bias. I'm going to give the cliff notes real quick. So, uh, bus segregation had been deemed illegal after the bus boycott that was ignited by Rosa Parks' refusal to move. However, these laws were not being enforced. So, even though the Supreme Court was like, yeah, you can't do this, you can't separate people, because... There was also someone, an older woman in Get In The Way, who would say that, like, not only was it about the segregation, but it was also, like, you had to pay your fare at the front of the bus, and then you still had to get off the bus and go around and get in the back. So what would happen very often is people would pay their fare, and then they would walk around to get in the back of the bus, and the bus driver would leave. So then they've paid money... Assholes. That is the
2: shadiest shit I've ever heard of in my entire life. Yeah. This
0: like motherfuckers trying to get to work and you're just going to like leave. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No, just no regard. Just pieces of shit. So after the bus boycott, though, you know, it was deemed illegal um, to have this kind of bus segregation. So not only on the bus, but also at bus stops and things like that, the facilities at bus stops. However, it was not being re- being enforced. Black people were still being refused the right to sit at the front of the bus or integrated with white people. They weren't allowed to sit with them um, very often. And they also faced segregated facilities at interstate bus terminals in the South. So the Freedom Rides were supposed to be rides from Washington. Washington, D.C., to New Orleans. And the plan was for black and white members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and the Congress of Racial Equality Corps to sit together. So, uh, and, and then there was like one person, there'd be like one black member who was going to sit in the back, not breaking any laws. Yeah, so quote, they, unquote.
2: the Freedom Writers were with black and white participants. It wasn't just yes. a group of, of black
0: e- In fact, they were almost half and half. I think it was like seven and six. I b- yeah, like it was, that.
2: or five and four.
0: It was, I believe, like one more white person than, than black person. Right, and so-, so the one who was, you know, kind of elected to sit in the back by themselves, um, that would be the person, if the others were to get arrested, that would be the person who would call... You know, SNCC and CORE to have people come bail them out. Right. So that was the purpose of that. So they left on originally on May 4th, 1961. And John and the group made it as far as Rock Hill, South Carolina before he was beaten badly and several other members were arrested. And at that point, they were like, okay, we need to reevaluate this situation. They still got a lot of attention for that. So after that happened and they received a lot of attention. The like state and local officials, the national officials. I think even the president um, said, "Hey, we are going to make sure that you can complete this Freedom Ride. We're going to protect you the next time you try and make it to New Orleans." Uh-huh. So. They tried again on May 14th, which was Mother's Day. And John John describes how early on in the ride, it seemed as though they were being protected. They were being followed by state troopers. There were helicopters flying above their route to, you know, kind of look over things and make sure everything was okay. However, it was never intended to be a peaceful ride. The Birmingham, Alabama, Police Commissioner Bull Connor, uh, together with Police Sergeant Tom Cook, who was a KKK supporter... They organized violence against the Freedom Riders with local Klan chapters there in Alabama. So they assured the Klan members that once they reached Anniston, Alabama, they would be allowed 15 minutes without intervention to attack the Freedom Riders. Mm -hmm. So basically they were like, hey, we're going to be, quote unquote, protecting them, but they're going to be unprotected for a 15 minute window at this place at this time. So pull up. So they pulled into the rest stop in Anniston, and John describes knowing that something was wrong right away. They had lost their police escort. Everything was eerily quiet, and the others looked to John for guidance, and he told them, don't resist, don't fight back, no matter what happens. And so they followed his lead. So when the bus attempted to pull into the rest stop, Um, It was blocked by KKK members. The KKK members slashed their tires, threw a firebomb onto the bus, and then they held the doors shut. So they fully intended to to burn everyone in this bus alive. It was an exploding fuel tank that caused the Klansmen who were holding the door shut to retreat. And so at that point, all of the riders got out of the bus, but then they were beaten mercilessly. Yeah. John Lewis was left unconscious in a pile of his own, in a pool of yeah, his own blood. I believe John never even made it off
2: of the bus. I believe he, Maybe so. I believe I, I remember him saying that like, he was still on the bus in a pool of his own blood after being beaten and just left unconscious there.
0: And they were especially savage. I mean, of course, they hate black people. That's why they're doing this. Right. Um, But they were they wanted to send a message to white allies and they were especially savage to the white Freedom Riders who I believe the man who was sitting next to John. Yeah, Albert Bigelow was very, very, very... Viciously beaten. Yeah, badly, badly beaten by the Klan. Mm. And he lost a bunch of his teeth.
2: Yeah, oh, it was. they talked about it in Good Trouble. I don't remember all the details, but like, yeah, they fucked him up like really bad. You know, I think it's very admirable for those people to... Put their lives at risk, and for this Albert Bigelow to, you know, completely to almost lose his life for, you know, ensuring that those around him could have a better life as well. I think it's so admirable.
0: I'll leave it there when it comes to the Freedom Riders. There again, like, there's so much that you could learn and talk about, but that's kind of like the brief summary. So, what happened after that is, um, a lot of bus drivers, they were still determined to make it to New Orleans, but uh, there were no bus drivers who were willing to drive them yeah. at this point because that one bus driver ended up locked in his bus with a firebomb in it. Yeah. Um. So at that point, there were no bus drivers who were willing to take them. So they said, you know what? OK, we've gotten a lot of press coverage. You know, there's press here who who were also attacked, by the way, the press right. were attacked and beaten. So they were like, people know what our mission is. Let's just make it to New Orleans so that we can go to the civil rights um, rally or march. They wanted, so, Yeah, they were
2: commemorating uh, Brown versus Board of Education when oh, they yeah. got to uh, New Orleans.
0: Yeah. So they were like, OK, let's take a plane. So they get on the plane and immediately have to get off of the plane because there was a bomb threat. Oh my God. Eventually they searched the plane. They're like, everything's okay. And they make it to new Orleans, but that was kind of the end of the freedom ride. They didn't make it from DC to, to new
2: Orleans. They did not. But, um, Diane Nash and John Lewis did organize a group of 10 students from Nashville to continue some of the rides. Uh, just kind of, I think, individually and still, you know, probably pushing for segregation on these buses, but without these huge demonstrations. So I think it's great that he still worked really hard to ensure that even though there was a lot of good press, that this particular issue was still being pressed in these, you know, Jim Crow states. Yeah. So in
0: 1963, Um, John became chairman of the nonviolent coordinating committee SNCC uh, and and that same year he became one of the big six leaders of the civil rights movement so he was the youngest leader and the youngest speaker at the march on Washington they called him and they were like we want you to speak but being a young you know you know how these college students are. They're we, they so just, radical. They're
2: so they're so radical, and they just say things sometimes. You know, uh, John was censored in his original speech. His big question was, "Which side is the federal government on?" It was eliminated from the speech by the organizers, afraid that it would offend the new Kennedy administration by questioning the federal government. So he was asked to remove that part of his
0: speech. But still, I mean, this very young man. He was managed like, was he 18 or was he I, I want to say 19. He was very young. Very it like young. He, it was somewhere between 18 and 20, I want to say. Like, very young. Yeah. Um, and he managed to deliver this incredible speech that... You know, to uproarious applause. So during his speech, he declared, we all recognize the fact that if any radical social, political and economic changes are to take place in our society, the people, the masses must bring them about so everyone was like yes yes we (laughs) must yeah (laughs) and you know
2: it was this was the same day as Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech so it is unfortunately not discussed in schools as much as it probably should be but it is a really beautiful moving speech especially because he looks so young and he already has such power Mm. and it's And we love seeing that like America loves to see these young people who are able to stand up and speak eloquently
0: and get behind them.
2: And he there is
0: something about a young person who life like, yes, they've learned a lot of things. They've gone through a lot of things, but like life hasn't worn you out yet. right. Right. You know what I mean? It's like you haven't had you've still got the hope. There's something about like being even me who like I feel like I try to stay very like socially and politically active. But like even for me, when you work all day and you have to do your dishes and the laundry and go grocery shopping and do all of these like very adult tasks, it it fucks with your single mindedness. You know what I mean? Because you you can't
2: have a one track mind. You have
0: there's too many things that you
2: have to take care of in your life to stay alive.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So there's a passion that young people have I think because of that because that's a great point you know they don't have to necessarily focus on all of these other things and And of course they have challenges yeah of course they have challenges and difficulties but You know, they're not trying to figure out, like, how when am I going to pick up my kid from school, you know? Right. Yeah, (laughs)
2: exactly. Exactly. Um, So after the March on Washington, John became nationally known during his prominent role in the Selma March to Montgomery, a.k.a. Bloody Sunday. Uh, We covered the... Selma marched to Montgomery, I believe last year during Black History Month.
0: I, I think so. I recently or we recently put out something on Instagram um, that has all of our episodes that talk about yes. Black issues. And so if, if you want to go back in our Instagram, you can find exactly which episode that is. I can't remember right now, but we did cover it. We did yeah. cover it. So we've talked about this a lot before. Um, and Yeah, And it should be said that It was the March on Washington that instigated the Civil Rights Act becoming a law, which should have made it easier for Americans to or for African-Americans to vote. But in the South, there were all kinds of things. And we talked about this in the Selma episode. There were all kinds of hurdles that were being put in the way, um, especially in places like Alabama and places like Selma um, to prevent black people from voting and they'd be dumb things like you have to, how many jelly beans are in this jar? You have right. to tell me the exact number or else we won't let you vote. Like just yeah, crazy what was stuff.
2: The, what was the, when we, when I talked about Fannie uh, Lou Hamer, I believe it was something like she needed some past voting receipt or something to get in. Yeah, She's like, well, yes. obviously I don't have
0: that. And they were doing other forms of voter suppression, like having um, literacy tests when you know that, you have been suppressing, right, You're the reason people's ability to read, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, all this time, and then you're like, "Well, you can't read well enough, so we're not going to let you vote." Right? You know, stuff like that. Exactly.
2: Um, will you remind me why it was John that was chosen to be in the front of the line with Jose Williams?
0: Yes. So John wanted to participate in the march from Selma to Montgomery for voting rights for African-Americans. But the other members of the SNCC didn't think that a march from Selma was a good idea. I think that they thought that there was a potential for violence or I'm not sure exactly what their reasoning was. Well, I mean, they were
2: right if that was their
0: thinking. It's true. It's true. But you would think that young people would be more radical in that way and less afraid. Um, But they told him basically they were like, we've voted on it. We are not going to participate as an organization, John. So if you want to march, you have to march as an individual. That's right. However... um, the organizers of the march did not know that he wasn't representing SNCC and he didn't tell them. He kept kept himself like real quiet about that. So they were like, okay, so you're the chair of SNCC. We want you to walk and lead this march with Jose Williams. So the two of you will lead all of these marchers from Selma to Montgomery. And so he did. And you can see this amazing footage of him on March 7th, 1965. It's so crazy. It was... It was John Jose
2: Williams and 600 marchers, and they were marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, where they were met by Alabama state troopers who ordered them to disperse. And when they had stopped to pray, they were attacked.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you see them kind of come head to head and you hear John Lewis say, we looked across the bridge and it was the sea of blue because it was state troopers in blue uniforms. And Jose turned to him and said, like, what should we do? And John said, let's get on our knees and pray and send the word back to everyone to get on their knees. I think he had this idea that if they could be as nonviolent as possible, that it would be the best for them. But before, he could get on his knees or send the word back to anyone else, the troopers started advancing across the bridge. Exactly.
2: And-, and Jose Williams knew this because there is a photo where they show this in good trouble. John is walking through a museum where they see this enlarged photo of the moments before these troopers, you know, attacked the marchers. And you can see Jose Williams plugging his nose. And John laughs and he goes, yeah, he, he did that because he knew they were about to, you know, spray him with tear gas.
0: Mm-hmm. It's and it's horrible. I mean, it became Bloody Sunday is what it became known as, um, because you can watch you can watch the video um, of these people, women, children being trampled by police, being beaten mercilessly. John himself um, suffered from a fractured skull from this attack. Yeah. And and he would something- have a scar on his
2: head for the rest of his life from that event yes. as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is something that, unfortunately, this is what it took to get kind of like moderate white America to become active and enraged um, about this situation because they were watching clearly nonviolent protesters be mercilessly attacked. And so this got disseminated, recorded and disseminated throughout the country, and it really sped up the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And after that, voting became sacred to yes. John Lewis. It's well, like a sacred act. For yes. Him. He, I mean, through that was something
2: I think through his entire time working in with civil rights, his big thing was giving people the power of their own voice. And the best way for us to use our voice is obviously to vote as Americans. So the fact that the black community was not able to put their input into what was happening in our country it was really to him. I think the base reason why there was such racism in the country is because Absolutely. they couldn't choose their own leaders.
0: And, and he's right. You know, he's right. But this
2: voting became his like number one Throughout his entire career, kind Mm -hmm. of after this point, he was very, very uh, passionate about ensuring that everybody had the ability and the right to vote, which is fantastic.
0: So after this happened, you know, uh, there were a few things that happened kind of in rapid succession. So um, Martin Luther King, who we've kind of hinted at the beauty of their relationship. Their relationship was really, really sweet. So a lot of the other big six members or a lot of the other people who were working in the civil rights campaign, um, they were talking about how aloof Martin was to them. Like he was kind of, he was nice and polite and obviously like a great man, but he wasn't super comfortable or friendly, um, with, everybody. Right. But he was with John, like his Mm -hmm. relationship with John. um, Somebody described it as John being his spiritual son. They just had that connection. And John described it that Martin was like his older brother. They had this incredibly (laughs) sweet relationship. Um, And so they really were like, I, I see
2: why Martin would say that they were like, it was like his soul son or something like that, because there's so many similarities between these two men and you know their speaking styles and the the passions they had in life and just kind of the way that they grew up as well there were so many similarities between the two of them.
0: Well, I think John admired Martin so much that he really it's like a big brother. It's like when you see your big brother doing something and you just have stars in your eyes and you're yeah, just and like, he wanted "I want to be do that." Just like him. Exactly. Yeah, I want to do that. Exactly. So it hit him really hard when Martin Luther King, of course, it hit him very hard whenever he was a Assassinated, and Bobby Kennedy was also assassinated, and it it really that was kind of the beginning of. Black nationalism, black pride, when we saw in the later half of the 1960s, this rise in black activism circles calling for something more radical than Martin Luther King, more radical. Because you you do their thing, right? You do the nonviolence, you do all this stuff, and then they still kill you. And I think a lot of black people saw Martin Luther King's assassination as being like we're done we're done playing yeah. by your rules we're going to do something different exactly now. but that wasn't who john was
2: he right. he was not going to be a part of a movement where it was going to be where it wasn't going to be nonviolent so that was when it was clear to him that he wanted to step away because his big thing you know he viewed a lot of the black power movement as being like black Two separatists yeah like black superiority rather than you know, focusing on integration, which I don't think either is wrong. I really don't. But with him, you know, he that didn't match up with his own values and his beliefs. So he decided that it was time for him to step away from the civil rights movement in that way. And then he started work. Yeah. And then he started working more in the government, working on bigger change.
0: Yeah, so he had, like, political aspirations at that point. So he left SNCC as the chair of SNCC in 1966. Um, Stokely Carmichael, who was a radical younger man, kind of took his place as chairman. um, And he set his sights on moving into politics. Yeah. So... In nineteen seventy, he became the director of the voter education project. And during his tenure there, he helped register millions of minorities to vote. So not just black people, but like so all minorities. Everybody, yeah. and
2: I don't I didn't write this down and I used to have this memorized, but in in the documentary they talk about how like voting in Selma for minorities was like two percent. And after John was there, it got like it rose to like 33 percent or something astronomical like that. Like that was really he he did have because of his speaking style. I feel that he had such a great way of conveying to people that their voice and their opinions and beliefs did matter. And that made people want to push even harder for their right to vote.
0: Especially to black people. I feel like his speaking style, his way of preaching is very similar to what you get in a black church. I think it resonates with Black people um, in that way, and he really like for the rest of his life, as long as he was able, he would get out there and try and get people to vote, like on foot sometimes, like door to door sometimes. Even as an old man, he just had this really incredible quality about him.
2: Yeah. So he eventually uh, he ran for Georgia's fifteenth district, and he ran against his longtime friend Julian Bond, and this was kind of like. I liked this part of Good Trouble because it was we got a little bit of a scandal here. So these two yes. men um, had been best friends for so long, so close, loved each other so deeply, and John kind of started to accuse Bond of kind of being like part of the establishment. He had asked for John to take or for Bond to take a drug test, which Bond uh, did not like very much at all and it really just kind of damaged their relationship a little bit for the time because obviously John won and no there's an interview with the two men where John says you know we've we've always been friends we will get that friendship back and Bond just kind of says like you know it's gonna take some time and it was interesting to see him kind of not painted in like
0: this perfect Right. right, because he's he's always so kind. Yeah. And what, what he did was kind of what we see in like the dirty underhanded part of politics, right? right? But he says later on, um, well, before that, I what I will say is that like a lot of people thought that the odds were stacked against John Lewis because John Lewis was short and dark-skinned. And, you know, even though he was an incredible speaker, you know, this other man was tall, light-skinned, charismatic and appealed to the white supremacy part of our brains right. uh, in a way that John Lewis didn't. And even then when John Lewis was interviewed later in his life, he said, if, if I could go back now, I would probably do it differently. Yeah. So you can tell that even though it was a stepping stone for him to go on to do great things, he didn't like the way that he did that right like, exactly he didn't like that
2: yeah it was just it was a very different tone of the documentary than i was used to um but i i'm glad that that was something that he saw later on and that was i mean obvious with him because he is such a kind person i'm sure that was very out of his personality and of course we don't know what goes behind the scenes in politics all the time or who suggested it and all of that kind of stuff as well um yeah he would go on to be re-elected 16 times for Georgia's 15th congressional district
0: yeah amazing like he was just so liked um and then in 1986 he was elected to the house of representatives uh and i believe he remained in the house uh until his death or almost i believe i believe he
2: did there was a really great scene in good trouble where john and his staff members are waiting to see um Who's going to get the House if it's going to be the Democrats or stay with the Republicans? And there's this huge celebration, like, we got the House back. We got the House back. And, yeah, I I believe that he was part of that until he
0: passed. He— continued to be outspoken about human rights, he was actually one of the most liberal members of the House during his entire time there. He was one of the most liberal congressmen to have represented, um, actually, I think what I read was he's the most liberal congressman to have represented a district in the Deep South. So, that's how likable, that's how likable he was. He was out there being like, women's rights, gay rights. Yeah, he
2: opposed the Gulf War. He uh, opposed, he fought for national health insurance, fair housing, he fought and against still the death penalty in Yet the deep still south where like we
0: we stand, John. We stand. That's you know? crazy. I haven't said this word in so long, but that's bonkers, bonkers, it's- banana sandwich for sure. <laughs> um, so, in March of two thousand three, he spoke to a crowd of thirty thousand people in Oregon during anti-war protests at the start of the Iraq War. He was arrested in two thousand six and two thousand nine, and. He was arrested in 2006 and 2009 outside the Sudan embassy in protest of the genocide in Darfur. He was one of eight U.S. representatives from six states arrested while holding a sit-in near the west side of the U.S. Capitol building to advocate for immigration reform. I think all in all, by the end of his life, he had been arrested something like 45 to 50 times. Yeah,
2: like- he made some sort of joke about that, and there was another joke in Good Trouble where, I believe it was Stacey Abrams, who he helped get elected, and they were about to make some speech and she was like, Are you nervous? And he was like, I spoke at the march on Washington, honey. I'm fine. <laughs> like, when I was
0: like 19, yeah. I'm nothing could possibly scare me. Yeah, at this point. Ex-
2: he's like, Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. He really, he was just so fearless. And I think that his fearlessness
0: came from the fact that he knew that he was doing the right thing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think he had a piece. About him because he knew that no matter what anybody else said or thought, including his mother back in 1961, um, it it didn't matter what anybody said or thought because he had a piece in knowing that what he was doing was the right thing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing this in 2010, but um, they were going to vote on a new health care bill and John was walking in. And there were violent right wing protesters, members of the Tea Party, who spit on him and called him the N-word on his way in. And he didn't, he didn't even flinch. It's like all of that conditioning from, you know, school when he was being trained. Yeah, he didn't even react. It's like he didn't even register it. He walked right past and then he told members of the house when they got inside because everybody was shook. And there were other, you know, black members who were pissed. Yeah. And he told them, like, that's not what we're here to do. What we're here to do is pass this bill. So keep your eye on the prize. That's what we're here for. Damn,
2: (laughs) John, damn. Yes. Well, also in 2010, he was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Obama. Perfect, and I I really love President Obama and John Lewis's relationship as well because after President Obama won the election in two thousand eight, he you know John Lewis asked for Obama to sign something for him, and he wrote on a little note paper saying it's because of you, John. <laughs> and he wrote another one when he got elected the second time, and then he got to give John the Medal of Freedom. There's just uh, that's another, and he like, spoke
0: at his funeral. Yeah, Obama and, spoke at John's funeral. He did, yeah. and that's
2: another relationship that I I really love it's almost kind of like John was his Martin Luther King Jr.
0: Yeah it's, you know it's so freaking like mwah. it's beautiful. amazing Chef's kiss. Yes.
2: Well throughout John's life he was awarded more than 50 honorary degrees. Can you imagine having 50 fucking degrees Keegan? No, where do you put all the plaques? I don't I know he his house is so cute. I love all the weird art he has but in my head I was like he must just have a wall somewhere. Surely. Of yeah, just a wall full of plaques. Yeah, they had like plaques Dr. and Drake. diplomas and everything. Um, so throughout John's life, his biggest fear was a loss of democracy. So especially during Trump's presidency, that was a big thing that John continued to fight for. He continued to fight for people knowing that they had every right to use their voice, to use it, to vote. And also, you know, to, to see that we could possibly be losing...
0: The most American thing about us, which is our democracy. And that was his and, biggest and our right fear. to vote and mm-hmm. our right to vote like that was a, a really big thing for him because he saw multiple renewals of the Voting Rights Act. Yes. Um, in in his lifetime. But then in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down part of the law in Shelby County versus Holder and. Um, Which he said was a dagger into the heart of voting rights. And so this, among other things, I tried to read it, but I'm not smart. Um, (laughs) But among other things, this decision allowed states to require photo ID. It was basically, it allowed certain levels of voter suppression. And I think for John, it was kind of this flashback to being like, oh, we can we can say how many jelly beans are in this jar yeah. to keep you from voting. Um, and it was it was a difficult thing for him to have to deal with I'm at, sure. at that time. And can you, and, uh, you know, so John
2: passed away last week on July 17th at the age of 80. But there is something so unsettling to me that he passed away during this administration, during a time where our right to vote is potentially being taken from us. It's just like this is the time that we need him more than ever. But at the same time, with his passing, there's been this resurgence of people talking about John Lewis and talking about the things that he did, which I think could be just as important.
0: I think it's also important to remember that John Lewis, yes, he is an icon in the black civil rights movement, but his desire to fight for civil rights didn't stop at black people. In 2016, after the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, he wore a rainbow ribbon and he led a sit-down comprised of approximately 40 House Democrats on the floor of the House. Um, Oh, I remember that now. So when he was leading that sit-down he brought attention to gun violence and said that they needed to take legislative action. And he said, we have been too quiet for too long. There comes a time when you have to say something, you have to make a little noise, you have to move your feet. This is the time. So he he supported, he was outspoken about LGBTQ rights. He was outspoken about immigration rights. He attended pride marches and rallies. He spoke at families belong together rallies. Um, you know, kind of speaking against Trump's separation policy. Yeah, he He, was just a human
2: rights advocate.
0: You know, he just
2: saw injustices in the world and did everything he could do to correct them. And that is why it is such a devastating loss to our country to have lost John Lewis. At the same time, you know, I think especially during this time when, you know, we're seeing the Black Lives Matter movement still happen, but it's starting to kind of wane a bit. And having this, you know, kind of resurgence of his popularity and of people wanting to know who he was and know more about him, I think could also be a really powerful tool during this time leading up to our coming election.
0: I think it's his last act. I think it is too. is, Is being like, you know what? I'm going to make sure you guys don't forget about this. And actually, when I was watching "Get in the way, um, they started it with the director, who was a woman named Kathleen Dowdy. And she starts the documentary off by talking about the George Floyd protests and how much the protesters of today remind her of the civil rights protesters of the past. Yes. And how they were able to ignite and move a nation. And we can do that. Yeah. too. Yeah, which is why, you know, watch
2: good trouble, watch get in the way, learn more about John Lewis, watch his speeches, because he does have this ability to make you want to fight for change as well. And I think that, you know, if this is his last act, we really need to give it to him. You know, I agree agree, really which do. is why we did this four times, four <laughs> times, John, four <laughs> times. Thank you. you, John. <laughs> thank you for letting us get through this episode. Finally. Oh my, I'm going to be so pissed if I get done and like something's Don't wrong. Don't say that. Don't say uh, that. I just did. I just did. Oh, well, we made it. We did it. We finally got through this episode. Um, Thank you so much to everybody who's listening. If there's anything that we missed in this great man's life that you want us to highlight next episode or during the mini episode or something you want to talk to us about that you liked during this episode, go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us and follow us on Instagram at angry Neighborhood feminist. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at YAMF Podcast. Y A N F. Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. If you don't, oh, you can also rate and review us on Apple podcasts. (laughs) I was like, I was about to go to radio public and I was like, wait, I missed something. We really appreciate it when you all post your reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's the biggest thing that really propels this podcast forward, and we really, really appreciate your support. And so as a thank you, you'll be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday on our Instagram page. Uh, Last but not least, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a tiny bit. All right. With all of that being said, we encourage you to rage rage on. on. Bye.